Hello everyone and welcome to this Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition podcast. Following a little bit of a gap due to COVID and some other mishaps, uh, we're back recording a Phantoms. And this is the Phantoms for the uh, May uh, edition of the, of the print journal. With me, as always, is Professor Ben Stenson from The Simpson in Edinburgh. And if you'd like to say hello, Ben. Morning, Jonathan. Morning again, Ben. Uh, I'm Jonathan Davis. I'm the, one of the associate editors from, from the journal and a neonatologist here in Perth in Western Australia. With this month's phantoms, there's a lot on sort of early respiratory management and a little bit on, on high flow as, as there tends to, it tends to be sort of recently. So the, the first uh, paper is a study from, I believe, Zurich, uh, Vincent Gertner, um, and I believe with Dirk Bassler in that group as well, looking at surfactant, nebulized surfactant. And uh, this is perhaps, if we're, we're, when we're talking about um, delivering surfactant, this is perhaps the, this is the panacea. This is the, perhaps, the, perhaps the best way to do it. It's completely non-invasive, Ben. Well, it, hypothetically, it's the best way to do it because clearly it would be a very easy experience for the baby, but that depends if it works or not. Yeah, absolutely. And then this paper is looking at an older set of infants between 26 and 31 weeks. Well, excluding, sorry, it excludes the extreme preterms and uses some uh, poractant alpha. And the primary outcome is not as I was expecting, but it's a, it's a lung impedance measure rather than a, than a true physiological or, or clinical outcome. Yes, so they, they're looking at the initial uh, lung aeration after birth and how, how quickly the babies are able to recruit their lungs. But they have also measured more readily accessible clinical measures like their FiO2. And I was really interested in this paper because a bit like when we were using endotracheal surfactant and more or less all of these preemies were intubated, we went through a journey of late rescue surfactant, early rescue surfactant, prophylaxis versus rescue, prophylaxis versus very early rescue. And just as we thought we were learning the best way to give surfactant, along came the trials which showed us that outcomes are probably better if we manage babies non-invasively from the start. And now we're back on that journey again with working out the thresholds and best method for surfactant delivery. So this would be truly prophylactic, non-invasive, truly non-invasive surfactant. Uh, the disappointment is, of course, that they weren't able to show that they achieved enough effect for it to be obvious in this relatively small study. But when you give endotracheal surfactant to babies with RDS, the the effects of surfactant are obvious in very small samples indeed. So um, I'm not put off by the small sample. And I've got a little bit of experience with trying this form of nebulization myself with similar disappointment. Oh, right. Okay. Um, so I, I, I believe... Um there's at least one other study that has been done uh, with nebulized surfactant, and I th- I think it was in in Perth. Jane Pillow and colleagues um, looked at and uh, published in this uh, in our journal uh, looked at 
the bigger babies and its and, and its benefits. Um, and I I understand that there's a European study ongoing, but you might not be able to talk about that. So I think there's more to come with this. And there's, uh, I think as um, as you said. We just worked out how to provide uh, surfactant in 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 one form and move from prophylactic to targeted, and now we have another um, modality to get the hang of when surfactant should be applied and how it should be applied. So, I thought the surfactant story had run its course, but uh, it certainly looks like there's a, as with most things in neonates, there's a a little bit more of the story to come. Yeah, and and obviously we needed to study this as carefully as possible. It's always been an issue with nebulization of any treatment that uh, particularly in in patients with lung disease and patients on other forms of respiratory support, that a large proportion of what you nebulized gets carried away by the bias flow or the uh, of the respiratory support devices and can't get into the airway. So the, the challenge is whether or not a method of delivering aerosolized or nebulized surfactant can actually achieve enough delivery to make a difference. And I think that the jury's still out. I agree that there was that other study that you mentioned from Perth. I think the outcome was how many of the babies were intubated. And one yeah. of the difficulties um, with all of our studies of different respiratory support is masking the studies or is an amusing term, masking when half the study is about using a mask, but yeah, um, pun intended. So that they're not they're, they're as minimally influenced by other biases as possible. So I think this is quite a hard thing to work out, and we're probably going to need some more data, as you say. Yeah. So just just to say that was the Cure Neb uh, study that was published in uh, May two thousand and nineteen, and in fact one of the authors, Stefan Minicherry, was uh, the first author in that in that paper. And as you say, the primary outcome were uh, outcomes were requirement for intubation and duration uh, of mechanical ventilation at seventy two hours. So uh, we'll put the um, the link in that as well, so people can can cross reference and look at other studies because I imagine lots more data is required to, to, to look at this one. Uh, next, uh, which I, I find very interesting, was um, so high-flow nasal therapy, so oxygen or air, to uh, stabilise uh, babies during intubation. Now, this study is from Dublin, Anna Curley of the Planet uh, 2 study, looking at uh, hypoxemia during uh, intubation attempts in uh, preterm infants. So Jason Florin and, and colleagues. Uh, and this is this is interesting in that um, there is a lot about uh, hypoxemia, but really this is a, a good uh, a feasibility study that in fact uh, nasal high flow was possible during the intubation and provided um, provided perhaps a little more uh, stability to that process, but definitely um, something that will require a few more studies in order to establish it in neonatal practice. Yes, so I thought this was interesting because it's not long since the publication of the SHINE trial, which um, in a bigger study showed potential benefits of implementing high flow during intubation. I guess the interesting thing about this study was that they it's a mass study in as much as they put the cannula in all the babies, but only administered high flow through it in half of them. And um, it's also the case that um, 
probably the success of intubation in this study wasn't very high in either group, maybe reflective of reality in a lot of centres. And so working out whether or not there's enough benefit to instituting high flow in all babies pre-intubation is interesting, to, at least. I mean, when we do uh, minimally invasive surfactant, we usually use the leave the CPAP or the high flow in place whilst we do it. And so the extending that to all intubations is a neat idea. The question is whether or not the benefits or the reduction in any harms is enough to justify it with all of the costs and equipment and so on that are involved in doing so. So I think it's a story with more to come. And um, I was interested by this paper too. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as I was reading through it, you know, it was uh, Kate Hodgson from Melbourne who uh, undertook the SHINE trial published in the New England Journal, I think, last May, just around the time of the PAS uh, meeting in the States. And uh, yeah, I, I, I agree that intubation and opening the lungs uh, and having other means to open the lungs, uh, but whether it's that or you know, there are some studies that have recently looked at the amount of FiO2 in breathing and you know, um, breathing is necessary for surfactant. You know, um, distribution that's that's equal. So there's a lot of there's a lot to unpick around these particular studies, and um, we probably should say this is the nosy pilot trial and is um, I think is open access. So um, it's definitely worthwhile worthwhile reading, and will no doubt form part of a a, a process in um, improving uh, either reducing hypoxemia, maybe that's the mechanism, or or um, optimizing the respiratory function during what is potentially a destabilizing procedure. So yeah, very um, very interesting uh, sort of set of studies. And, and following on from that um, sort of acute management, uh, there's a study from the NICHD in the United States looking at umbilical cord management. Now, this was a retrospective study comparing uh, to epochs and perhaps was just before the time where uh, cord clamping was starting to, to take off as a therapy. So perhaps a bit more retrospective than some of the more prospective trials, but nonetheless, very interesting looking at the uh, the uh, expectations and um, uh, delivery of care in these particular infants. Yeah, it's kind of measuring the implementation journey of a practice that is shown to be beneficial, but that requires the clinical community to unlearn their long-established habits. And it... As you say, the data aren't bang up to date, but they they show that um, even though it was the intention to to perform delayed cord clamping in uh, wherever possible, quite a high proportion of infants received immediate cord clamping. And I must say that's consistent with my observation over time, although gradually with um, good liaison in our delivery rooms, we've we've managed to get that now up to a very high level the um the other thing that's interesting is the place of umbilical cord milking which uh 
can be delivered quite quickly, even when people perceive a relative contraindication to um, uh, delayed cord clamping. Obviously, there's been data published in our journal and others which caution against the possible dangers of that in patients who may be at high risk of uh, intraventricular hemorrhage so that people are now reserving it more for relatively more mature preterm babies. But to my mind, watching my own implementation journey, the place for cord milking disappears once you acknowledge that there are truly very few contraindications to delay cord clamping. Yeah, yeah. And I think, as you said, in the, in the, um, the phantoms, probably people want to have a look at the Australian placental transfusion, the APT study, where 74% of infants were randomised to delayed cord clamping received the intervention. So probably a slightly higher proportion than that in this study. However, one was a prospective intentional trial and one was a retrospective really reflection of practice. And that was a little bit of some time ago, so perhaps not necessarily a fair comparison of... But I would say that the 74% is still lower than you would achieve once you've well, yes, really you would hope, yeah. got, got used to normalising delayed cord clamping. So that too is a measure of the journey. Absolutely. Um, so uh, the, the next, next study is probably worthwhile. Um, and I think we've talked about it on this uh before mortality and neurodevelopmental outcomes of infants with SIP, something we've talked about before, and I think we've we sort of came to the conclusion, I think, on the previous discussion that definition is really key here. Looking at what is necrotized endocolitis and intestinal perforation, and what is spontaneous, and where the overlap is. But I think this um, systematic review and and meta analysis, although numbers small do give some cause for concern that if SIP happens, then the, the, the adjusted odds of death or severe neurodisability is, is too, over twofold for both. So um, I don't know where this, where this leaves us, but uh, it still increases further concern, I suppose. Yes, I found this interesting because, as you say, um, it does appear important to distinguish more reliably between the conditions of surgical NEC and spontaneous intestinal perforation. And that may be of importance to surgeons in deciding their management, but it's clearly also important prognostically if there's a big difference in outcome. And I must say, in the absence of clear data, instinctively, I think we have considered SIP to be a less dangerous condition than NEC perforation. But um, uh, this this article gives us a caution that it's far from benign. And um, so it's important prognostically to be able to give good information to families. But um, again, differentiating, really important, so that we can start to work on the surgical management considering the very high mortality and morbidity of both NEC and SIP, it feels as if there's a lot of work to do in working out what the best surgical management is and that it's presently managed by a very large number of surgeons individually 
rather than according to developing national protocols. Yeah, and I, I think I agree. I think that the point you made about having uh, uh, perhaps taking SIP as seriously as we do with necrotizing enocolitis and uh, perforation in that the, the, it isn't as benign as we thought. Um, and that's one step on the way to better, more standardized management. Uh, and perhaps that standardized management may have an impact on those uh, mortality and developmental outcome numbers. So the, the last uh, paper that uh, you've highlighted in this uh, month's uh, written journal is uh, uh, from our colleagues uh, in Southampton, uh, looking at changes in growth parameters of very preterm infants between 2006 and 2018 in England. The rest of the UK left out there. Uh, but uh, so this is a really big study, um, 29,000 infants of babies born less than 32 weeks uh, and a comparison of two uh, cohorts. And I don't know, the headline for me was babies are getting bigger. Yeah, so, and that fits with probably your clinical observation over years that we are paying more attention to growth than perhaps we were and we are achieving better growth maybe I should put better in inverted commas, we are achieving increased growth compared to our historical practice. And obviously this is a really important area. It may impact on uh, whole life health and development. And it's part of a story that's really gathering momentum to, to start doing bigger, better, more informative studies relating nutritional practices to outcome. Because whilst we can measure the outcome on the scales and satisfy ourselves that growth is better, the potential toxicities and uh, uh, associated with early parental nutrition need to be properly measured so that we get the best balance of risk and benefit in our nutritional approaches. And um, you know, I'm really delighted that there's more and more content in this area coming into the journal. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose I've been slightly facetious with the babies are getting bigger, but um, what what it probably that that's probably what it shows, and that's that's that, that babies are getting the, the weight gain velocity is is improved than, but with perhaps maybe more aggressive nutritional practices. But uh, as we know, with neonates, they do grow up to become adults who go on to have their own cardiovascular risks and is faster weight gain actually better? Is that the right type of weight gain? So there's, I suppose there's a lot to um, unpick uh, with what that actually means. And, and, and you're right, there's some question now, and I think, did we discuss it last time, looking at early versus late? There's certainly perhaps some data from the 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 um the national neonatal research database and chris gale's group looked at early versus late uh, tpn in older infants uh, um with a, i think with a view to a study that's coming up and and we know from PICU data that early tpn isn't necessarily better in in terms of outcome so it, this is a good study and it describes what's happening and probably reflects what our practice has been but this is just the 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 preface for an introduction for a story that's likely to run on for a, a, a quite a few number of years. I agree. Really important. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, Ben, thank you uh, very much uh, for a very informative and engaging discussion, as always. As everybody knows that uh, you can get a hold of the podcast via the front page of the journal. You can go via your podcast on your various devices app. And it'd be great if you could leave some feedback and some comments uh, about whether um, you'll find this interesting and where we should go next. We'll uh, we'll try and um, select one of these papers for a discussion with the authors uh, coming up and um, hopefully COVID aside and uh, all sorts of things, we'll be able to have another discussion in the very near future. Uh, So uh, thank you very much, Ben, for a great discussion and uh, we'll speak again. Thanks, Jonathan.